some of the word coming over the wires is that in the square in Tehran, they have the message up, the great liberation has begun. I don't know if any of you remember the movie Patton, when George C. Scott's giving the message at the beginning, and he's talking about how they're going to cut through the German army, and he gets to a point and he says, you know, I really feel sorry for those poor blankety-blank-blank. <laughs> Israel will not be removed. God made a promise in Isaiah 11, 11 that they would be recovered and restored the second time. And that second time came in 1948. There's not going to be another. However, there are scenes that are coming across of women and children who have been captured by Hamas being paraded through the streets of Gaza, shamed, humiliated, beaten, and abused. So it's very important for us to understand the human suffering that's going on. And, uh, you know, it's... <clears throat> I well remember the very first time I went to Israel, 1986. There was fighting going on between Israel and Lebanon. And I remember we were on the hill of Megiddo, Har Megiddo. And I remember a bunch of, we had uh, U.S. fighter jets that were involved. And as we were standing there on the hill and we're talking about Armageddon, and a bunch of American F-16s flew over on their way to Lebanon. And uh, we all cheered, you know, uh, go get them and all that. It was our Israeli guide, after we all got done cheering and slapping each other on the back, said, remember, they're people too. They have wives and children just like we do. I was very humbled that he would make such a statement about the people attacking them. We need to pray for all of those people because Christ died for all men. Join me in prayer as we get ready to go into our next to the last session. Father in heaven, how thankful we are for the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How thankful we are that however many divisions that we may make among members of the human race, whether by nation, whether by race, whether by creed, culture, religion, whatever. You see all men as sinners in need of a Savior. Christ came into the world to die for the lost. And so, Father, we lift up the people in Israel, as well as the people attacking and surrounding, because we realize that Christ died for them all. Father, how we pray that you will demonstrate as you flex your mighty right arm to defend your people, that there is no hope outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who sits at your right hand and now reigns over the nations and the events of this world 
will very, very soon come in power and glory, and how we long for that day. Until then, Father, help us to keep our focus in your word. Keep us balanced in our lives. Help us to be faithful as ambassadors, faithful as witnesses, and faithful as believer priests in our prayers and intercessions on behalf of all men. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I was thinking during the break of a passage in Ezekiel. Just turn to it here in Ezekiel 21, 27. I will overturn, overturn, overturn until he comes whose right it is and I will give it to him. The overturning is going on around us as we speak. <clears throat> you may not be surprised to know I found another set of threes while we were <laughs> relaxing. You know, he gives us three historical examples in verses 5 through 7, and then he gives us the three sins of defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, and speaking evil of dignitaries in verse 8. But I found three more threes that are not in my notes. You might want to jot these down. They're very interesting. How Jude orchestrates his message. <clears throat> and of course, by the inspiration and, and leading of the Spirit. In verses 5 to 8, it's very interesting that we have examples of evil in the historical examples and the dreamers that he mentions, and then he throws in a positive in verse 9, Michael the archangel. And then in verses 10 to 13, he gives again examples of evil, and then he throws in a positive with Enoch. And then following Enoch from verses 15 to 16, he gives us more examples of evil. And in verse 17, he says, but you. I think there's something very, very powerful in this. Because you and I stand in the long line of those who are to stand for the Lord and represent him in the midst of a broken and a sinful and an evil world. As Michael the angel and Enoch the prophet, you and I stand on this earth for a reason. God has a plan for our life. God has something for you to do. And as I said earlier, we tend to think in terms of you know, those who preach to thousands or those who go to other countries as missionaries or evangelists who lead many to a saving knowledge of Christ, and those are all wonderful things. But I think the thing that Jude would remind us of, and let's face it, Jude's relatively unknown in our New Testament, and so here an unknown and obviously insignificant person, we might say, has left us a record that comes down through history that is still changing lives. You may feel that your task, your role, the part that God has for you to play 
is insignificant. There are no insignificant people in the plan of God. There are no unloved children in the family of God. There are none left out of a vital part to play. And I think the thing that Jude would remind us, and we're about to see this, he told us earlier to contend for the faith. We won't get to it until tomorrow morning. I hope you're ready because the, the big fireworks display is tomorrow morning. Everything's building up to it. Uh, as far as Jude actually getting into the nuts and bolts of how do we contend for the faith. But it basically boils down to this. Keeping our focus, walking faithfully, and serving as we have opportunity. It's as simple as that. And if you and I are willing and available to be used by God, if we are humble, if we make sure that day by day we are in fellowship with God and empowered by the Holy Spirit, He will accomplish His plan. And oftentimes, and I find this to be true, uh, so many times in my life, he does his greatest work when I'm not even aware of what he's doing. Uh, it's kind of like you go along through life and, and you know, you're trying to, to be faithful and you're trying to do great things and you want to accomplish, you know, we have big goals and objectives and, and then all of a sudden you kind of turn around and go, wow, look at what he just did. And it kind of catches us by surprise. We're not even aware it's kind of like divine guidance. You know, we pray for divine guidance, we search scripture for divine guidance, but Nan and I find so often as we travel around the world and uh, we go into so many different cultures and different countries, different places, so many decisions, you can't believe the number of decisions that have to be made just in a single mission trip. And as we're making all of those decisions, oftentimes we come along and, and we find that at a point we just went this way, not really thinking anything special about it, and then we find out that God had something amazing planned on that little, what may have appeared to be that little side trip, something amazing that he accomplished that we really could not possibly have prepared for. So <clears throat> three examples of evil counteracted by good. Let me give you those again. Anybody that didn't get them down, here they are. Verse 5 to 8, we have the evil counteracted in verse 9 by the positive example of Michael. The second set, verses 10 through 13, once again, examples of evil. And then in verse 14, the positive example of Enoch. I have a surprise coming up for you with Enoch. And then, of course, verses 15 to 16, he goes again into a display of the evil. And in verse 17, he brings it down to you and I. And I think the point that Jude would want us to get is that we are now, and, and this would be true of believers anywhere in church history, as they're reading this book, but you. He was writing to the people of his day, but he was writing to the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation, and now it's our turn to take that but you and apply it 
to ourselves and realize we are the ones who are now on stage and playing the part that we have to play. So Michael, contending with the devil over the body of Moses, we saw uh, once again why this contention. Well, it may explain, and you can jot this down. I'm not going to turn back to it. In Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 and 6, we find that God personally buried Moses. And he personally buried Moses in a spot that no one would know to this day. I believe that that probably has some connection with the devil's nefarious attempt to seize the body of Moses and use it for some ungodly and unholy reason. The Lord rebuke you. Maybe the next time you get into a confrontation, a conflict, uh, imagine what it would be like in a family feud, a family fight, husband and wife arguing over something. Uh, it would probably slap me to the floor if Nan just calmly looked at me and said, the Lord rebuke you. I think I'd probably be so ashamed I would probably have to go and hide for a while and spend some time getting right with the Lord. The Lord rebuke you. Judgment belongs to God. James tells us this in James chapter 5 and verse 12. It's very interesting, however, that when Michael says the Lord rebuke you, it is once again in the optative mood. In other words, the Lord rebuke you, and I hope he does. Or maybe we could say it, the Lord rebuke you, and I know he will. The word for rebuke here is the same one used of Jesus when he rebuked the demon in Matthew 17 and verse 18. So <clears throat> he picks up now in verse 10, these, referring back to the dreamers, these speak evil of whatever they do not know. You know, there are a lot of people that talk a lot about things they know nothing about. They speak evil of things they know nothing about. Whatever they do know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Isn't it amazing? The hypocrite's reasoning is like that of an unreasoning animal. In their boast of intelligence, they show themselves to be brutes. In their great expounding on things beyond their comprehension. They speak of things they know nothing about and then turn around and like an animal, they corrupt themselves and destroy themselves in those things. Rather than comprehending what is above them, they really understand only what is below them. Isn't it amazing? Angels, man, animals. They speak of a realm that they don't understand, but they act in a realm that's below them. Angels, man, animals. Very amazing. Jude here demolishes the Gnostic claim to superior knowledge. If you know anything about the Gnostics, 
the uh, early church had to battle them, John in particular, because he came later, the Gnostics really developed later, um, and they constantly boasted of superior knowledge. Uh, there were different types, different categories of Gnostics. The word Gnostic, of course, coming from the Greek word Gnosis, which refers to knowledge, and they would boast about their great secret insights of knowledge. Uh, they talked about their mysteries, which is where the Apostle Paul picks up that word mysterion to use of things revealed to us that we could not otherwise know. So we have mysteries revealed to us by God that give us insight and initiate us into an understanding uh, that we would not otherwise have. The Gnostics were like... Well, they're like some Christians today that are always talking about things they really know nothing about. Uh, we need to realize that we confine ourselves to the Word of God. Speculation is fine. I have no problem with someone saying, as I look at this scripture or as I study this passage, I kind of wonder if or I speculate if. I was talking with someone during the break about the Nephilim and why are there Nephilim before the flood and yet we still have Nephilim after the flood and there are a couple of different possibilities. On those areas that we don't know, there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, to me as I look at this, as I analyze this, I think maybe this is how it goes. But we need to always remember that our speculation is a speculation. If we can't nail it down in Scripture, then we need to acknowledge, I can't nail this down in Scripture. This is just my thinking. And if someone differs with you, uh, you need to be willing to give them the benefit of the doubt as they give it to you and grant them the right to have a little speculation on their own. Uh, it's very interesting to me. I remember years ago when I used to go to all the pastor's conferences that we used to have around the country, <clears throat> some great times <clears throat> with some great men, but... I remember one time sitting at a table uh, with some pastors and they started talking about could Daniel save America if Daniel was the president? If Daniel could come back today and be president of the United States of America, could he save America? <clears throat> and I saw two pastors nearly get into, well they got into definitely an argument, but it was like they were almost to get into uh, throwing punches over whether Daniel, if he could come back, could save the country. And I remember sitting there and thinking, I think these guys are too smart for their own good. <laughs> because it was all speculation. So we have to be very careful when we get into too much speculation. The Gnostics thought they had answers to everything and they didn't even have answers to life. Have you ever seen someone who's always correcting everyone else and they can't even seem to live their own life? Sometimes you run into people like this. It's like they know what everyone else ought to be doing. They have counsel or advice or exhortation or whatever, correction for everyone around them. Well, you ought to do this. You ought to do this. If I was you, I'd do this and so on and so forth. And you look at their life and it's a total wreck. They can't handle their own life. Well, this is pretty much what Jude is dealing with here. People who speak of very high things and yet can only live on a very low plane. Notice verse 11, woe to them. 
Now, the word woe is a word that the Jews say can only be screamed. In other words, it's a very potent, very powerful word. Uh, we have passages of woe in Scripture. You might look at Isaiah chapter 6 sometime. Isaiah pronounces woe on his nation. He pronounces woe six times. But the greatest, the most horrible passage, the most awful condemnation that I think was ever uttered by the lips of man came from the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 23. If you would turn with me, I would like us to see his denunciation of his own nation. He is uh, speaking, of course, to the scribes and the Pharisees. Notice that he says, beginning in verse 1, Jesus spoke to the multitudes, to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they're in the place of religious or spiritual authority. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. In other words, as long as it's in line with the Old Testament scriptures, whatever they tell you, they are in positions of authority. And by the way, notice here, how astounding is this? We just had Michael dealing with Lucifer, who was his former boss. Here we have a reverse situation. We have the Lord of glory in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is in much higher authority than any scribe or Pharisee, and yet he is paying a certain amount of respect to their position. They are in a position of authority. The same as we're told in Romans chapter 13. Let every soul be subject to the powers that be, because the powers that are, are ordained by God. Whoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God, and will bring down on themselves swift condemnation. I don't like a lot of our leaders, but we have to respect the position that they're in. That doesn't mean that we do everything they tell us to do. We need to realize that our highest authority is always the scripture. Daniel and his friends disobeyed the commands of their leaders because the commands of their leaders violated the commands of scripture. So as in Daniel chapter 3, when they were commanded to worship the golden image, they refused and they faced the furnace of fire. Here's the great thing. When you always keep the word of God foremost in your mind and in your soul, God is going to guide and direct so that the things that work out from that, some will die as martyrs. Paul did, Peter did, James did. Some will go through the fire and come out not even smelling of smoke. That's Daniel's three friends. It's God's prerogative to choose how all of that ends up. Later we come into Daniel chapter 6. Daniel is told not to pray. Notice that one command is a command to do something God says don't do. The other command is a command not to do something God says to do. I think there's a lady in Britain right now, she may be out by now, uh, who was standing at an abortion clinic, silently praying, and got arrested, got her hands in shackles, and got thrown into a police unit and thrown in jail for standing on the street and silently praying for the children that were being put to death by abortion. 
Well, she's doing what God has commanded us to do. Now, he didn't necessarily command it. doesn't matter if she stands on the street corner. I think by her presence, she was trying to be a silent protest. But the point being, we're commanded to pray. And if the time ever comes that our authorities, and of course, they really do this, they do it in an underhanded way, don't pray in school. I remember in 1963 when the Supreme Court banned prayer in school. That was when I started praying in school. Not long after that, they told us that you can't study the Bible in school. And therefore, I made it a point to start carrying my Bible. And in study hall, I wasn't studying math or geography or social studies or whatever. I would open my Bible and read my Bible. I began handing tracts out to my friends. I never did it before, but you have to understand my personality has always been a little bit rebellious. If they tell me I can't do it, I'm going to do it. So in a way that their negative uh, commands actually motivated me to get a little bit more serious about my Christian life. So Daniel's told, don't pray. He opens the windows. He's in front of the eyes of the whole world. I'm going to pray as I always pray. And he gets thrown in the lion's den. So they sit in Moses' seat. By the way, why do... Why did Jesus tell them to have respect for these people? Was it because of them, because of the scribes and Pharisees? No, it was because of Moses. It was because of Moses. Did you ever stop and think about something? I mean, you guys here, you're living right in the heart of it. You got battlefields all around you of the battles that were fought for this country to become what it has become. The lives that were lost, the hopes that were shredded, the families that were scattered and destroyed. And yet to those people, this nation was worthwhile. Now we have a lot of people in positions of power who have no respect for that at all but we respect because of those who paid such a price. I think so often of our soldiers and sailors and Marines and airmen that have sacrificed so much. They've bled, they've died, they've left behind weeping wives and fatherless children for us to be here today. And it breaks my heart when I think of some of you, I'm sure you were Vietnam, the price that was paid to look at this nation today to see what it's become. What a shame. But we need to understand their sacrifice was not in vain. It was never in vain. That which is done in honor, that which is done in courage, that which is done for truth will stand forever. In the same way, you and I as believers, we look across the face of this land, we see the church becoming more apostate, becoming more degenerate. We see fewer and fewer churches that are willing to stand up and teach the Word of God. So what do we do? Throw up our hands and just give up and say all is lost? Not at all. We make the decision that all of us have to make, the same decision I make as an American. As long as I am alive, the true America will be alive. By the way, I don't know if you have noticed this, but our FBI has just decided that there is a new group of extremists. 
a new terror threat. Have you heard this? MAGA people. A terror threat. Really? Do we throw up our hands? Do we give up? No. America lives as long as it lives in the heart of even one person. In the same way that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are the last believer on the face of this, this earth and you trust in Jesus Christ, you stay in His Word and you live your life in His honor, the church lives. Make up your mind that if you're that last person, you will stand firm. Continuing on with Jesus here. Whatever they tell you to observe, you observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and they do not do. Think back to what Jude was just telling us. They talk about high and mighty things, but they live like beasts and animals. They love to bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders. I've known some pastors like that. Well, they love to tell you, if you do this, you're probably not a Christian. You know, if, if you think bad thoughts, I remember how confusing this used to be for me as a new believer when I would go to a church and the preacher would say, now real Christians never do this. Real Christians don't think this. A real Christian would never say this. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, well, I thought I was a Christian. I've trusted Christ, but I do all of those things. How confusing can it be? Anytime you make being a Christian based on anything other than faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you have actually polluted the gospel. You've actually perverted it. It never depends on what I do. It always depends on what he's done. That is Christianity 101, the Christian life. Now we're talking about something different. Living the Christian life, yes, now it depends on what I know and how I think and what I do. But the issue of salvation never depends on you and I. You ever hear this one? If you hold out through your whole life, but you lose faith in the end, you've lost your salvation. Could I suggest something to you? If salvation can be lost, we're all going to hell. Because you aren't good enough. You know what else? You'll never be good enough. Try as you might. Sweep all of your dirt into the corner. Cover it up with whatever rug you find in your life. Make yourself look as pristine as you can. God's going to walk into your life and pull back the rug and say, you're no better than anybody else. Amen. What did Paul say of himself? I am the chief of sinners. That's the only thing that we can really boast about. I'd like to argue with Paul, except I know he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I think I'm a contender at least for second place. Verse 6, by the way, here's how you can tell losers in religious positions of authority. They love the best places at the feasts. They love the best seats in the synagogue. They love greetings in the marketplace. I remember a pastor in my town where I first pastored in Conway, Arkansas, and he, they had a, 
ministerial alliance where all the pastors would meet together and he got all the pastors together and he talked to, to them about, we need some insignia or some uniform or something. We need something to identify us to the community as religious leaders. Well, here we go back to the Pharisees with broadening their phylacteries and doing, you know, all the tassels and everything else so that as they walk through the marketplace, everybody, oh, there's a holy man. We need to pay attention to him. One of the things I've always hated is when I visit people and they'll have friends over and they'll say, this is Gene, he's a pastor. They go, oh, I better watch my tongue. I have to be careful. Or someone will say something a little off color and they'll go, oh, well, he's a pastor. Oh, I'm so sorry. Why would you apologize to me if you're not ashamed to say it before God? Amen. Who am I anyway? Besides, I may have said the same thing. <laughs> I want you to drop down to verse 13 as he begins to rebuke these scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. By the way, the worst thing you can call someone, you want to call somebody something really bad, this is it. This is the worst denunciation that ever came from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. In other words, they came up with so many rules and regulations of what it took for you to be saved that nobody could possibly measure up, but they didn't even do it themselves. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites! You devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. You say, how did they devour the widows' homes? They made the widows pay them to pray for their departed dead. We'll pray them into heaven. Just pay me a little more money. Folks, anyone who serves God or claims to serve God who makes money an issue is a phony. They're fake. Money is never the issue. If we can't trust God to take care of our needs, we might as well wrap it up and go home. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. You know, sometimes we're that way in our churches. We've got to recruit. Recruit. I always thought the best way to recruit is tell people to leave. You don't like the way I teach? Go down the street, there's another church. You don't like what I say? Go across town. Go find another place. Because we're not here to cater. We're not here to appease. We're here to do the very best we can in our own fumbling way. And by the way, yeah, it is a fumbling and bumbling way, but I kind of like my fumbling and bumbling way, and I'm going to stick with it. So, by the way, if you don't like it, leave. <laughs> Verse 16, woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Well, if you're a gold digger, it's the gold that's important, right? 
Whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing, but whoever swears by the gift on the altar, he's obliged to perform it. Why? Because it's all about the gift. It's all about the money. Verse 19, fools and blind, uh, sorry, we covered that in verse 20. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it, and he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. By the way, what was Jesus' instruction about swearing? Swear not at all. By the way, when they talk about swearing, they're not talking about what we call swearing. Uh, if you call somebody a knothead or a... I'm being kind, but you, you get the drift. That's not what they're talking about. The swearing they're talking about, and we hear people say this sometimes, I swear to God. What have you just done? You've just called God as your witness. You've called on Him as the verification that what you're saying is true. Jesus said, don't ever do it. Just let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. In other words, these little tiny seeds, I get ten seeds, so I've got to give one of them as my tithe at the church. Could I give you a suggestion? What I believe is the New Testament opinion on tithing? Ten percent's not enough. Paul says... Give as the Lord prospers you. Has the Lord not prospered you? He's not expecting you to give. Use what He provides to meet the needs of your family. As He prospers you, He says give. What's the next condition? Condition number one is He prospers you. Condition number two, as you purpose in your own heart. Condition number three, only give if you can give joyfully, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is not after your money. God's after your heart. The money only has value when it has your heart behind it. And when we can give whatever we give, and we give it from a full heart of gratitude and appreciation and joy, God is able. We've seen it happen so many times. God takes the small little gift of the poorest person and multiplies it into a million dollars. I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but one time standing in India after we had a meeting under a tree because the people didn't have a place to gather in a church, a blind lady led by a little girl came up and through the uh, interpreter, she said to me, this is all I have in the world. I want you to have it. She gave me a little coin. The pastor that I was with told me the coin is no longer even used. It has absolutely no value. That coin was precious to me. Do you know what that little coin turned into? That coin worth nothing? Over 150 churches in India. 150 places where Christians are now gathering together, praising God, studying His Word, bringing others to a saving knowledge of Christ from a gift from a full heart, from a blind widow. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. By the way, it's easy for us to read this and think about, yeah, those scribes and Pharisees, what a bunch of hypocrites. 
God intends us to read this and ask how much of this applies to, to me. Right? How about this one? He cleansed the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. How good do you look on the outside? How bad do you look on the inside? We all have two stories. We have the story of the external, that which people see. We have the story that's the reality that God's most interested in, what's going on in the heart. Let's clean the inside. Let God worry about the outside. We're living, by the way, in a generation where everybody wants to have hits on YouTube. Everybody wants to have likes. Everybody wants to have this, that, and everything else. How about if we paid a fraction as much attention with being acceptable to God and let the opinion of the world go by the wayside? Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! You're like the whitewashed tombs that indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. By the way, remember, this is the worst denunciation that ever came from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not half as bad as sometimes what we say to other people. How restrained was he? How in control of his tongue was he? I'm studying the book of James for our next conference, and as I read through the book of James, it just slaps me up the side of my head. How are you doing in this? How are you doing in this? My brethren, be not many teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. And then he goes into an entire chapter on the use of the tongue. The tongue can no man tame. I can testify to that. I can't tame this tongue. All I can do is fall down in humility before the throne of God and say, you alone can control this weapon of either blessing or cursing. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, your witness is against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. How I love after all this denunciation. You know, the Lord Jesus at the greatest point of provocation in his life Verse 34, therefore indeed I send you prophets and wise men and scribes and some of them you kill and crucify, some you will scourge in your synagogue and persecute from city to city that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come on this generation. He was talking about 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem. And then what does he say? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent, how often I wanted to gather your children together. You know, that's what he's saying over Israel right now. 
How often I wanted to gather you together. How often I wanted to protect you. How often I wanted to deliver you. And as often as I send you help, as long as I give you comfort, as long as I send people to deliver you, what do you do? You put out the stiff arm, push them away and reject it. You know what he's saying today? I can hear him saying it. Oh, America, America. How often I wanted to gather your children together. But you would not. Your house, America, is left desolate to you. When Jesus said this, they were just in a few short years of 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem, the famine that was in the city as it was under siege by Titus the Roman was so horrible that mothers were baking and eating their own children. The future of this country doesn't look good. But our future can look good if we Turn to the Lord in faith. Come back with me to the book of Jude. I took longer on that than I wanted. Verse 11, Woe to them, they have gone in the way of Cain, greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. You'll be surprised to notice another set of three. We're going to pick it up in our next session. Let's pray. Father, how our hearts grieve for Israel at this hour. But Father, what we are seeing, what we're watching, the videos that are coming out, the cries, the screams, the devastation, it's a preview of our future. We better wake up. We better realize that no nation turns its back on you and walks away unscathed and unjudged. How we pray, Father, that we might keep the light alive in our souls, in our lives, in this dark and difficult generation, that there may be others around us who will ask a reason of the hope that is in us, and may we have Christ sanctified in our hearts to the point where we will be ready to give a reasonable answer to those who ask, that others may find the grace, the salvation, and the security that we have. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.